This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. Okay, good afternoon. We're going to turn to the Word of God now, to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, uh, to take some time to listen to what God might be saying to his people today through his Holy Spirit. So, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We started a series a couple weeks ago on this letter called Power and Weakness, and we are on 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 on into chapter 2, verse 11. So, let's listen to what God has to say to us today. Paul writes, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for not unaware of his schemes. This is the word of God. Shall we pray and ask for God's blessing on this? Heavenly Father, we come to you because we want to listen to what you have to say to us. We want to be obedient children with open hearts who are eager to receive what you say to us in your word. So now, Lord, help us to listen and to receive. Help us to allow ourselves even to be surprised by what your spirit might be saying to us. Oh Lord, your word is light and life. And may it achieve in our hearts the purpose for which you sent it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So obviously when it comes to unity in the church, the stakes could not be higher, according to Paul. On the one hand, we have the watching Christ in whose presence we stand. And we have the choice to honor him or dishonor him. On the other hand, we also have the scheming enemy, Satan, who is sleeplessly probing for opportunities to create bitterness and division within the church. The stakes could not be higher when it comes to unity within the church. But as we know, unity never comes easily. Uh, it's just human nature, I'm afraid, that we're selfish and sinful. And Christians are included in that, of course, as we know by experience. Uh, we all have said and we've all done things that have hurt our brothers and our sisters. And if you're like me, you're very slow to admit fault, to confess your sin, and to ask forgiveness. And so, within the church community, 
bitterness festers and then it explodes. Or the community simply drifts apart because it seems easier to live without relationships and all the mess they cause. You know, they say in relationships with relationships, there are really two kinds of people, two kinds of responses, the fight or the flight response. And some of us lean into conflict aggressively. We pull hair, we bite, or we lean away from it and we refuse to even talk about the elephant in the room to deal with the problem. Fight or flight. And that's true of churches as well. And it's really a shame that that is the case in Christian churches because how we handle conflict exposes what we believe, what we truly believe about the gospel. I mean, the gospel, as Paul will say later in this letter, is the message of reconciliation. The gospel is good news about mercy to the undeserving, forgiveness to the sinner, restoration to the excluded. That's what the gospel is all about. I know conflict is not a happy topic. It's something we'd all rather not have to deal with in our lives. But conflict gives us an opportunity. It gives us an opportunity to live out either the values of the kingdom of Jesus or we have the choice to live out the values of the kingdom of darkness. And if, by the Spirit, we resist the temptation that we all have towards bitterness and anger, if we choose, you know what, I am I'm going to have the hard conversation, we're going to work through our tensions in a way that honors Christ, I think we'll make we'll make a double discovery about the good news. We'll learn on the one hand that grace is incredibly costly, but it's also unbelievably precious. Here in our letter, we find Paul in the middle of one of these situations of anger and suspicion and confusion uh, with the church in Corinth. And this church, from a happy beginning, Paul was the one who planted this church and led so many people within it to Jesus and walked with them on their first steps of faith. Now, unfortunately, this congregation in Corinth, they view their father in the faith somewhat suspiciously, somewhat coldly. The door hasn't slammed shut all the way, but it's closing. There's only a crack left open. And Paul doesn't, honestly, Paul doesn't have much margin to make a mistake, or that might be it for the relationship. This letter could well be Paul's last chance to explain himself and rescue this relationship. And as we talked about last week, Paul had intended to come for a couple long stays in Corinth to really spend time with these people. But then, even before those scheduled trips, he had the opportunity just to pop in on his travels. I'm sure he was very keen to enjoy their company again. Not only were these dear brothers and sisters that he'd known for a long time, I mean, this church was just pulsating with the gifts of the Spirit. The very thing that a weary apostle attacked and discouraged in his journeys would have needed. You know, pop into Corinth, just there'll be a timely prophecy perhaps. I can imagine everyone gathered around, laying their hands on, on me, praying in tongues, offering a word of knowledge or supernatural encouragement, just singing together in the joy of the Holy Spirit. I don't know, obviously, as we read this letter, we're using our imaginations to read between the lines to kind of reconstruct what happened. Paul is not as direct as we wish. He's actually tactfully vague in this letter, which is probably what was needed in that situation to deal with the problem, but a little frustrating for us as we try to figure out what happened. But it seems something like this had happened. Paul showed up for this surprise visit, but 
he did not get the warm welcome he was expecting. The room was not pulsating with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it seems like there was one individual in particular who was quite rude to Paul. He publicly challenged Paul's authority in front of the whole church. And the really hurtful thing was that when this guy spoke up against Paul, no one stood up for the apostle, no one shut the guy down. And Paul realized after the meeting that there's nothing to be gained by staying here. If I stay on in Corinth, things are only going to get worse. So Paul quietly left the city on the next ship after indefinitely postponing the lengthier stays he had planned. It's just not the time. Of course, as so often happens, the Corinthians misinterpreted Paul's motives for staying away. Some people just wrote Paul off as a weakling. Others accused him of being selfish. But here, in our passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls God as his witness. He's making a serious oath that the reason he had kept away was not for himself and his own feelings. It was in order to spare them. Paul wants the church to understand that his real concern behind every choice that he makes is his concern for them. Here's the question that Paul is always asking himself. How can I serve this people? What decision would be most profitable right now for their walk with Christ? What can I do or say that is going to contribute the most to their ultimate joy? Joy is what Paul is all about. And I find it striking that in the midst of so much pain, and Paul is really going through a lot of emotional distress in this relationship, that joy is still at the front of his mind. Here's Paul's goal, shared joy. Paul wants to see himself and the entire community together overflowing with happiness in the Lord. That's how it had been at the beginning of this church. That's how it should be. But right now, that is feeling a long ways away. So how can Paul move the church from the pain of conflict to the joy of unity in Christ? Well, Paul is Paul's determined not to do it by a show of strength. Power in weakness is Paul's theme in this letter. So he writes, we don't lord it over your faith. My job is not to dominate you. You stand firm in your own faith before the Lord. You have a master. It's not me. It's not any apostle or any pastor. Your master is Jesus Christ. Yes, Paul says, I have authority that Jesus has given me, but I prefer to appeal to your hearts. So Paul had sat down and written a tearful letter. And this was just an anguished appeal to the Corinthians. He held nothing back. He poured out his heart and he expressed his overflowing love for this church and his, his longing that somehow the relationship would be restored. And then... Paul had sent the letter off. And then there was nothing for him to do but wait and pray. And humanly speaking, it would have seemed unlikely that Paul's letter would have succeeded. I don't know if you've ever written a letter like that. You've typed off a long, anguished email to someone, and what usually happens is you're rejected. And the openness that you'd hoped for, with which you had written, is not reciprocated. 
But in this case, amazingly, the Corinthians had responded to Paul's letter. They had acted, and, and the only explanation is that the Holy Spirit was working on their hearts as they heard it read, as I'm sure Paul was praying would happen. And when they heard this letter, they were deeply moved. And they agreed, you know what, action must be taken. And the whole church decided that this guy who had offended Paul, the offender, he had to be dealt with. Better late than never. And so the church agreed on some kind of punishment. We don't know what it was. Perhaps it was a public rebuke. Perhaps they, you know, forbade this person from taking communion or attending their prayer meetings. Anyways, whatever it was, they inflicted a pretty stern form of church discipline on this guy. And he was made to feel, to really feel the consequences of his actions. Church discipline. Probably not your favorite word, probably not the topic you're most keen to hear preached about. And church discipline honestly does not sound very gracious, does it? But really, in the New Testament, it is an expression of grace. Church discipline is a healthy community protecting itself and everyone within it from destructive, from destructive relationships. If there's sin in the church, that needs to be named, it needs to be dealt with, it needs to be gotten rid of. And churches that don't do this, that simply avoid church discipline, become toxic. So church discipline has happened, some pretty severe church dis discipline, and Paul's worry now is that the church has actually gone a bit overboard. His letter has been more successful than Paul even wants it to be. The original offender has now realized that whatever he did or said was wrong, He's repentant, and now Paul's worry is that the poor guy is going to be drowned in guilt, and he might just lose heart and get lost in total despair. And what Paul wants the Corinthians to remember, that the point of discipline is not punishment, but restoration. That's what Jesus had taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. Hey, if you have an offense against your brother, if there's something between you, some simmering conflict... Go to your brother, go to your sister. If they don't respond, bring someone else and do your best to win them over. Because church discipline is about restoration, not retribution. It's about the relationship being healed, not about vengeance being taken. And there's always the danger that uh, we become a little too enthusiastic about church discipline. And then discipline becomes abuse and elders and leaders use it to crush dissent and to lord it over people's faith, the very thing that Paul refused to do. Those are obviously bad shepherds who hurt the sheep. Discipline is not about vengeance. It's about appealing to the wandering sheep who's going off to destroy themselves to come back to the flock, to come back to the fullness of fellowship with one another and with Jesus. And Paul's concern now is that the church has poured on the guilt so heavily that this guy is drowning in it. But now that the person has repented, they've, you know, they've, they've realized that what they've done is wrong, that the point of church discipline has been reached, and now it's time to pour on the love and the forgiveness, to bring comfort to this person's heart, and to fully welcome him back into the fellowship. You know, I find it so remarkable, reading this passage, that Paul's feelings are tuned so sympathetically to the guilty sinner. And this, remember, was a guy who had, who had 
personally sinned against Paul. He humiliated him, but Paul is not out to destroy him. Paul wants the joy of restored relationship with everybody. The whole goal of, of church discipline and conflict resolution. So here's the question. When we're embroiled in conflict with our friends, our roommates, our spouse, is the joy of restoration, is that the goal that we're keeping firmly before us? You know, it's so easy to become so consumed with our offense and our hurt and our pain that we just want to tear the other person apart or, or shut them out of our lives completely. But our experience of the grace of God should expand our horizons and make us long for something more. Because God is not like that. You know, the good news of the gospel is that God is not about nursing eternal grudges against his children. He's always working, he's always appealing toward restored relationship. So when you come to God and you confess your guilt, he doesn't force you to feel horrible about yourself for months and months until you really learn your lesson. He takes our iniquities and he hurls them into the depths of the sea for the sake of Jesus. And he gathers us up into his embrace without hesitation, without any coldness, with nothing held back. The relationship completely restored, the offense covered over and forgotten. And if we've truly experienced that, if we really know what it is to be forgiven and welcomed back by God, that should soften our heart toward those who have offended us. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. If any of you has a, have, has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So, here we stand together today beneath the foot of the cross. And there we are, shoulder to shoulder, looking upwards, and we see Christ hanging there, taking the guilt and punishment of our sins upon himself so that we could walk away forgiven. And having seen that, how can we then turn and grab our brother or sister by the throat and shake them and demand them to pay what they owe? You know, Paul had had a profound experience of God's forgiveness. He realized that he was the worst of sinners. He was someone who had been persecuting the church of Jesus and rejecting God's Messiah. And yet, Paul experienced mercy for Christ's sake. And that's why Paul now can write to the Corinthians, hey, if there's anything to forgive with this guy, I've already forgiven it in the sight of Christ. I've forgiven in the sight of Christ. Paul lived his whole life after the Damascus Road in the presence of the risen Christ. And wherever Paul went, whatever he did, whatever words he spoke, he felt the eyes of Jesus upon him. The eyes that are looking right now upon all of us who are disciples of Christ. Here we stand before our Lord, who died so that we might be forgiven, who has taken away every obstacle for full communion with God. And now, this Jesus, this crucified Jesus, is seated at the right hand of God, observing the choices we make in our relationships. Are we happy about that? 
are we forgiving like forgiven people? Is the way that we handle conflict bringing honor to Jesus? Is it bringing joy to his heart? You know, if the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that grace is incredibly costly. Forgiveness doesn't wave away the offense. It doesn't make the debt disappear. It means absorbing the cost of someone else's offense yourself. You understand that? When our children were very small, maybe, oh man, five years old, five, seven years old, probably younger, when we lived in Canada, they threw my camera out of our second story window. They were just foolish. They were having fun. They tossed it out the window. It landed on the grass and the camera was broken. And I forgave my children, but that didn't, that obviously didn't just magically wave away the cost of a new camera. It meant that the forgiving father would bear that cost so his forgiven children would not. If you forgive, you're absorbing the cost of the offense yourself. That's why it's hard to forgive, because it means the person who hurt you so much, they get to go free, and you are the one left paying their debt yourself. And so the only way that we can forgive each other from the heart is to recognize that my brother or sister's sins were nailed with mine on the cross of Christ. And that radically changes how we relate to one another. The people of God were always meant to live in a culture of forgiveness. In the Old Testament, God commanded that every 50 years, there would be the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, all debts were cleared. They were just wiped out. Any land, your family property that you had sold would be returned to you. That was the law. And so once a, once a generation, think about this, once a generation, every 50 years, the entire nation were given a clean, a, a clean slate. Every single person got a fresh start. I mean, wow, talk about joy. Imagine the whole village gathering together to burn their mortgage papers, to tear up their student debt, to receive the key back to their family home again, to celebrate the relief of the burden of debt removed. And here on this side of the cross, we live under a permanent economy of Jubilee. And our joyful responsibility now is to treat each other with the same forgiving generosity with which Christ has treated us. And that grace, that costly, beautiful grace is the only way to the joy of restored relationships. And that's why Paul forgives. He knows it's not about himself or his own mental or emotional well-being. It's about the health of the whole community. That's why he's doing it. It's for their sake. For the sake of a happy church, Paul will gladly forgive whomever needs his forgiveness. You see, the real enemy in conflict, and it's so easy to forget this, the real enemy is not my brother or sister. It's not my roommate. It's not my husband or my wife. The real enemy is Satan, the roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
And the one thing that Satan absolutely hates is gospel reconciliation. As long as people are bitter and angry, Satan can drive in his wedge until he destroys a congregation. He's watching sleeplessly for opportunities to do it, and he's watching our community for opportunities to do it. But there's one thing that Satan fears. One thing that seems incredibly weak, and yet it absolutely stymies his schemes. And that weak yet powerful thing is forgiveness. Nothing could be weaker than refusing to take vengeance on someone you have in your power. And yet, when we act with that divine grace, we're blocking Satan out from our community. And we're establishing a congregation that is unique in this world, people who relate to each other, not on the basis of um, power or merit, but on the sheer grace of God. So let's ask ourselves this afternoon, are we, are any of us, giving the enemy any sort of foothold within this church? Perhaps you are the offender, but there is sin that you're refusing to confess. Or perhaps you're the offended one, and someone has hurt you, but you're refusing to forgive. Perhaps right now, as we've been meditating on this passage, the Holy Spirit is bringing something to your mind. He's doing it in order to prompt you to take the humble, the difficult steps of reconciliation, to go to your brother or sister, to leave your gift at the altar, to go to them and make things right. And if we refuse to do this, this whole church will be nothing but a sham, a people who talk about nice ideas and sing some nice songs, but our actual experience of the gospel is incredibly thin, and in fact, it's a sham, it's, it's hypocritical. But when we choose to obey Jesus in this way, I believe that he gives us an experience of grace in our own hearts that we couldn't imagine because now we're not just talking about the story or singing about the story, we're actually living out the story of the gospel. And its power and its reality and its joy just burst forth in our hearts. How good and pleasant it is, Psalm 133 says, when God's people live together in unity. Let's bow our heads now and pray that God would help us to do that. For our joy and for the glory of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we want to be a community of people who live in genuine love and joy. And we can only do that if we have experienced gospel reconciliation. Lord, help each of us here to know himself or herself as a completely forgiven person. May they hear your yes over their lives. May they know that their guilt and their shame and their sin has been completely dealt with. And you welcome each of us as dearly beloved children. Lord, you sent your son to create a community of reconciliation a community whose message of the gospel is genuine because that's what we're actually living out. Lord, we ask together that TICF would be that kind of place. We don't want to be a place that's infiltrated by the evil one where we're living in resentment and bitterness and malice towards one another. Help us to walk in genuine forgiveness. 
Help us to walk in genuine love. If we offend against one another, O oh Lord, make our hearts soft so that we can recognize our sin and act quickly to make it right. And Lord, if we have been offended against, help us to have the love to go to our brother or sister and seek reconciliation and offer forgiveness. Lord, we want to be a beacon of the gospel in this city and in this world, a world that is riddled with so much hatred, where there's generations of resentment, where there's warfare and um, just so much discord, oh Lord. We're so thankful that you are bringing reconciliation to this world. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would give us the joy of seeing more and more reconciliation around us as we see the power of the gospel at work in the weakness of grace and forgiveness. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's respond in a final song of worship. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.